Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and in this episode, we look at how data journalists can effectively cover the immigration beat. To better understand this, we caught up with Sanduja Rangarajan, formerly Data and Interactives Editor at Mother Jones, who held this position at the time of this interview. She is now Senior Investigative Data Reporter at Bloomberg. Sanduja talked to us about the power of using data to cover systemic inequalities, particularly around immigration. She talks us through two important data stories, one looking at the H-1B visa crackdown during the Trump administration, and another examining the impact of U.S. troops pulling out of Afghanistan and its impact on Afghan green card lottery winners. We also hear some useful advice from her on how journalists can carve out a path for themselves in data journalism. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Sanduja Ringaraja now. Sanduja, welcome to Conversations with Data. Hi, Tara. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit about yourself and your work in data journalism. I know you've worked at Reveal, Mother Jones. You're soon starting a new job at Bloomberg. So just tell us a bit about that. So, um, you know, I have um, always, when I decided to be a journalist, I already had some background in data in another profession. But my primary reason for being a journalist was to, you know, write about systemic inequities, to write stories that mattered the most. Um, and and uh, particularly thinking about the idea of community. And uh, data was just a way to tell those stories in, in a more powerful way. And I had these skills already. So, you know, it was just easy for me to pivot. But um, I, I started as a data reporter at Reveal and I've been doing data journalism at Mother Jones. But I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's a, I, I've looked at it as a way of uncovering systemic inequities using data, but also grounding with with storytelling and human stories. And that's that's the way I've done my reporting. Um, I've done investigations around disparities in the tech workforce. I've done um, stories about immigration, um, you know, and, and, and the pandemic and uh, inequities that were uh, surfaced, resurfaced during the pandemic. And most of it is driven by data, but it has, you know, a lot of narrative components to it. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'd love to sort of hone in on today is your experience working with data and on the immigration beat. So I just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit more about that. Um, You know, one of the stories you did initially, I think, with Reveal and Mother Jones was looking at the H-1B visa program. Um, For those who don't know, that's the short-term visas for highly skilled immigrants in the United States. But um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that investigation and what the data analysis for that revealed and and how that story came about for you. I mean, journalism is such a community-driven profession. It's very sophisticated, but fundamentally, it's about telling stories about what's happening around you. And and in my case, you know, it it just happened that I'm an immigrant. My husband's an immigrant in the in the United States. My husband um, is on an H-1B visa. And a lot of our family and friends were on H-1B visas. And I was seeing things and hearing things which I'd never heard before. You know, people who had stayed forever uh, in the in the United States on those visas and held the same job, et cetera, et cetera. The H-1B is painful. You have to renew those visas. It's annoying. There's not that much long-term like 
stability, but at the same time, it was not one of those things that would not get renewed or whatever. Like, you know, you, it, it was annoying, but it would happen. But, you know, for the first time, I think in 2017, people who'd stayed there for 10 years, who'd stayed in the United States for 10 years, were packing up their bags within three days because, you know, their visa wouldn't get renewed, which came completely out of the blue for them. And President, former President Trump had enacted a lot of policies using mem- memos, you know, he and Stephen Miller sort of really started cracking down on H-1B visas. And their political like reasoning was obviously that, you know, these people are taking away American jobs. They're not really high skilled. But my investigation found that, you know, um, they were actually turning away a lot of really, really highly qualified candidates on H-1B visas. You know, people with PhDs from Stanford and people with master's degrees from really um, elite universities. And I did that by building my own database. You know, I knew that a lot of people were filing lawsuits and a lot of people were asking for appeals to the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Appeals Board when their applications were getting denied. And by looking at those appeals and by looking at those lawsuits, I was able to see that a lot of people were filing those lawsuits. I was able to get a um, sense of the kinds of people who are getting rejected and uh, a sense of, you know, how many lawsuits were being filed. And historically, that was a a high. Uh, and it also gave me a sense of the kinds of people who are getting denied. And I, it told me that, you know, people were getting denied and they, they would go and appeal to that board and their own internal board would reverse the decision at a historic rate. And if you filed a lawsuit, the judge would say, hey, I think they have a legitimate case. So in most of the cases, they, they would get what they wanted, which is basically the approval. Which, you know, which all pointed to the fact that, you know, these memos and these rules that Trump had created, they were like uh, misapplying the law. And, you know, they, 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 they were just meant to track and crack down on immigrants. And he was obviously doing it on the border. He was doing it across the board. But this was just like a missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle that, you know, he was also doing it with high school immigrants. And I wonder from your experience, you know, that lived experience of, of you know, being married to someone who's on that type of visa. What do you wish other reporters who cover immigration understood more about this, who haven't had that background? I think, you know, bringing your own personal background to work can be really, really helpful in, in whatever way. Like, I think um, I'm not an immigration reporter, right? That's not my beat even. But I was able to uncover this story because of what was happening in the community. And I, I've seen that, you know, um, n- most most reporters in the country didn't pay attention to this issue because there was so much going on with immigration. But I think even if immigration reporters that are terrific immigration reporters in, 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 in the United States, um, and I don't know if I have any specific advice for them, but I've noticed that some of the people who do the best immigration work are people who understand that particular community really well and have some sort of a connection with that community, if 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 that be. Uh, you know, an example that comes to mind is Aura Bogado at Reveal, uh, who is a former colleague of mine. And I think the empathy and the humanity that she brings to her stories and, um, uh, you know, and, and she's able to challenge a lot of like supposedly well-accepted myths about certain people and workers and point out, hey, that's not true. That's just that's just what's politically painted. Uh, it's, it's a perceived myth or it's a perception, but it's not necessarily the reality. And here's the reality. And I know that because I'm in touch with this community and I'm able to report on this community. And I think it's very similar 
to the to the kind of work I did with the H-1B visas. You know, I, I did a story on H-1B, doctors on H-1B, literally saving lives in the middle of a pandemic, overworked, and they were on H-1Bs. And, you know, their kids were aging out, which means that they would have to, you know, leave the country if they turned 21. If you're on an H-1B visa, that your dependents, you know, um, can only stay on as a dependent in the country for a certain amount of time. Uh, you know, they were people who, let's say their spouses expired while working on the job, you know, as a doctor treating a COVID patient, their family would have to be uprooted and they would have to leave to India after staying here for 10, 10 years or so. And, and there's a shortage of doctors in the United States, right? So I did a story about that. But I think that those kinds of stories come about because nobody needs to explain to you the context or the background. You you kind of are already related and connected to that community. And so when they when they make an argument, you can you can understand it very, very, very easily. You can build trust with your sources very easily. Uh, because they they know that you're you're going to be fair to them and and fair to their life story. Yeah, absolutely. It's just it's amazing how the journalists telling these stories can really change things and make an impact for these communities for people who don't have a voice. So, I think it's really important to be connected to that, like you were saying. Um, now, your title, or at least I know you're changing jobs at the moment while I'm talking to you, but it has the the phrase interactives in it and data interactives. Um, you mentioned that you came from another profession before you got into data journalism. So I'm just curious about your skills visually and, and what, what your coding skills are and your design skills. So I think, you know, data and interactives, I think is um, just, just that space is just a very, very wide space right now. It's like saying I do computer programming, right? There's a million things you could be doing as a computer programmer. And it's becoming very sophisticated, um, even in journalism, you know, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, if you said you were a data journalist, you'd probably be the only one in the newsroom and you would like do a bunch of things. Uh, it's much more sophisticated and specialized now. You know, you'll have people who are doing only graphics. You'll have people who are building apps. You'll have like a tech team that's designing the website in a newsroom. And then you'll have, you know, data journalists who are doing data driven stories. So obviously I, I do programming, you know, um, that's a that's a no-brainer, but the kind of programming I do is more tied to data analysis work like Python and R and SQL and that kind of stuff. And then I and then I do a little bit of visuals, like I know a little bit of D3, but um mostly I, I use like data wrapper and flourish and tableau and those kinds of you know softwares to do data visualizations. And then I do a little bit of data visualizations. Visualizing data is also a way of exploring and analyzing data. So then I use, you know, pandas and Python, and I also use a ggplot on R and do a little bit of that uh, when I'm playing with the data. But I don't, you know, those are just, you see, you make a chart and it's not, you know, you can't just stick them on the website. They have to be a little more interactive and pretty. So for that, then I recreate those charts on data wrapper or uh, Flourish. I'm not like a primarily graphics person, uh, but at Mother Jones, you know, we I, I would work with the art team, for example, or the illustrators and, you know, um, or, or people who have um, um, visual programming skills on the tech team. And we'd form like a small group. And if this was my project, I would be in charge of that project and get the interactives done. So I would probably do some of the back end stuff and then I would lean on somebody for some of the front end stuff. 
And I wonder what tool right now do you wish you could learn that you just don't have time for, but you're you're often finding yourself phoning up a um, a designer or another programmer in the team for help. I think I'm kind of there on the back end with Python, but I would love to, you know, learn uh, Ruby on Rails or Django. Obviously, I want to skill up with my JavaScript and my CSS. Uh, because that's changed a lot, you know, uh, and, and unless you're like, a, this is where the specialization part comes in. Like I used to be able to, you know, write code in JavaScript and build tiny apps and things like that and, and, and use CSS. But, to, you know, I've, I've built websites uh, as side projects when I was in school and whatnot. But things have changed so much right now. It's so much more sophisticated. And, and therefore, a, a whole another challenge is just... Um, staying on top of things. And that's where, you know, you have to pick what you want to, what you want to stay on top of and what is it that you want to lean on others um, for. And do you find that you're spending most of your time on the data analysis? Absolutely. That ties very well with um, investigative reporting. And I've spent so much time doing reporting, uh, you know, reporting my own stories and characters. I feel like what data analysis does is that it supports or it's the foundation for a project or an investigative story, or it could be the foundation for a project or an investigative story. You analyze the data, you have the findings, you talk about systemic inequity in a particular way, and then you know you find characters who are impacted by the systemic inequity that the data has already borne out, and then you write the story. Absolutely, and you know that brings me to my next question. I mean, you wrote a really compelling story where you interviewed three different families in Afghanistan who managed to win the green card diversity visa lottery, um, which was just in itself pretty incredible, but yet they, it seems they didn't get their visas. Well, how did that come about? When did you start working on that? Was it right when Biden said we're leaving uh, Afghanistan or how did that come about? So I knew about, you know, uh, consulates were closed uh, during COVID. And one of the impacts of consulates being closed is that these kinds of visas are, are backed up, like family-based visas and, you know, uh, diversity-based, like, green cards and visas. Those are all, like, not being processed. And depending on what has happened with COVID, you know, some of the consulates have opened up, especially in, uh, in, in some of the wealthier countries, or which, which then had access to vaccines. And, you know, it's like that whole chain. And then some of the poorer countries like um, Afghanistan don't have, you know, or, or even a lot of countries in Africa, actually, they don't have uh, access to a consulate and therefore they're not going to get their visa that particular year. But I knew of this issue in, in different ways, like lots of people are getting impacted and lots of visas are getting impacted. And I knew that, you know, based on my reporting and my sources, this was also happening in the H1B front. Uh, so I just knew of this issue, but I wasn't, you know, writing on it. I was busy working on a lot of other things when, uh, um, you know, President Biden said he's going to pull forces from Afghanistan. And, you know, there were reports of Taliban taking over. And then I just started thinking, you know, if this is happening, then what is happening in Afghanistan for the people who won the lottery in Afghanistan, right? They were extremely, extremely in a difficult situation, and uh, especially because of Taliban taking over. And so it, the, the rest of it was just finding the sources, finding, I, I reached out to a few of my past sources, my attorneys, and I was like, you know, this must be happening, right? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you're thinking about it. And, you know, put me in touch with a few Afghani families. Uh, you know, I, I spoke with them at um, the 11 in the night, 
uh, found a translator and uh, wrote the story. And then, you know, a lot of this um, data, especially with like immigration data is publicly available. It's just a matter of digging and finding the right numbers and context for your story. So I just, you know, pulled those numbers from uh, the different, you know, I think the State Department and um, worked with the attorney as well, who's also filing a lawsuit and was on top of some of these numbers and just put together the rest of it. And then I just wonder, what is your process for fact-checking an investigation um, that has data and has all these characters? Like, are you someone who has like a data diary and each day you add to it? Or or do you have a methodology document? Like, what's your process? It depends on the story and it depends on the timeline. The longer and more complicated it is, the more I feel like I document. Because I've worked on stories which have taken like many, many, many months. And in the middle of it, you know, I would have to go for maternity leave or whatever, right? Uh, if if life, life gets in the way of very long projects and complicated projects, so you want to be extra careful when you document. Um, for the smaller projects, you know, like for this Afghanistan one or any of the, um, some of the smaller H-1B stories that I did, they were investigative, they had characters, they had data, but there wasn't like a deep amount of an, um, uh, data analysis. A lot of it was just, you know, turning it around very quickly. So for those, the, I think the key is that when you have the draft, you go over it again and again and annotate it and fact check it or have a fact checker fact check it for you. So it's 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 less process and more doing. I think for the more longer complicated projects, obviously, you know, data diary, and then. Um, I also try to do the basics of fact-checking for, for narrative, for example, you know, running nexus or background searches on your sources, just triangulating what they're saying for in many different ways. If they say this is their salary, asking, you know, not feeling shy and just asking for their pay stubs and documents so they can, um, so you can verify different parts of it. For example, one of my H-1B stories, the lead character, because I'd spent so much time on that story, I actually wrote to all of the professors. He, you know, he said, I studied from this college and I got a degree from that university. And I wrote to those universities to confirm that he actually did study from those universities and things like that. Now, I wouldn't do it for a story where I'm like turning around things in two days, but I would do it for a story if I've spent like many, many months working on it. I want to make sure that everything that my lead character is saying checks out. The other thing, you know, there's data diary, obviously, there's annotation, there's triangulation. From a data analysis point of view, try to get the same answer in different ways. So, for example, for my H1B story, right, I was working with another academic who was also putting together these lawsuits. So I was sort of like talking to him. I was working with another academic who was looking not just at H1B lawsuits, but different kinds of administrative um, uh, procedural Lawsuits called the APA Act. Um, I, I forget the uh, term for it, but she was looking at different kinds of like immigration related lawsuits that were all being filed under APA and she'd seen an uptick. So, you know, I, I was sort of like working with her uh, on on making sure that my trends and my uh, this thing was right. I was calling up every attorney that was in my database and asking them for what was the outcome of that lawsuit. And, you know, just getting a sense of the same story in multiple different ways. You know, I looked at the appeals data, which also said the same thing. So looking at different possible ways of getting at the same finding to make sure that you can sleep well in the night, that you're not, you know, being dishonest or you don't have any surprises. 
because you've checked as much as possible in many, many possible ways using different sources, et cetera, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and I wonder from your perspective, anecdotally, are you seeing the situation improve since we moved from Trump to Biden uh, in terms of immigration issues? Or is that just almost impossible to answer because COVID has kind of slowed everything down and consulates are shut and things are just not moving like they could or, or can? It's a very complicated question. And I think it's very hard to answer, especially because I haven't done any sort of like great data digging uh, to compare apples to apples. But my general sense, like you said, anecdotally, uh, talking to sources and just having a feel is at least with H-1B stuff, you know, I, I know there's a lot of stuff happening at the border, you know, um, refugees being deported and, and things like that. Uh, but I think at least with H-1B stuff, uh, I have seen that, you know, the administration's not actively trying to clamp down on the program like the way Trump was. So there's that difference. But given that, you know, they could be doing more and, and this backlog isn't going away. And I, I don't I don't think this administration's proactively doing as much across the board on immigration. So we'll just have to wait and watch with that. And I just wonder if you have any final piece of advice for data journalists who are new to the field, not necessarily writing on immigration, because I know you cover so many different topics, but just, you know, something that you maybe wish you had known when you were breaking into this field? You know, the way I've, there are different ways to do data journalism and carve out a path for yourself. And uh, what what's worked for me is uh, leaning into a platform's strengths. Um, and especially when you're in the earlier part time parts of your career, right? There's so much energy, enthusiasm, and little power in the organization that you're in. So what I did when when I was in that situation was just to do the best I could, you know, and um, I I would, I love doing data analysis, but sometimes, you know, I was pushed to do my own stories or write or get out of my comfort zone because that's what was needed to get my stories to the finish line. I couldn't wait for some reporter to finish their story and come and work on the data analysis on the story. So then I learned investigative reporting. I learned writing. And so I, I just feel like, and, and, you know, at Mother Jones, I got to do personal essays and I got to do different kinds of stories, you know, more, uh, more on the, more on deadline and things like that. So I, I create, learned an act for doing things quickly. So I think every platform has its strengths and every stage in your career, you you know, you would probably have to get out of your comfort zone and you wouldn't have things exactly the way that you'd planned for. So my advice only would be to like go with the flow and uh, try to get out of your comfort zone and, try to get as many skills as you can because there's a you can either be a super specialist and if life's taking you there and your first job is as an intern in like a very sophisticated place you know learning and coding and scraping and doing deep uh, data analysis stuff great for you but if if you are in a place that allows you to do different kinds of stories or report and write along with data analysis then that's a different path as well and that's the path I've taken and I feel like I uh, that's, that's working for me. Marvelous. Well, thank you, Sanduja, so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. It was absolutely fascinating to hear your background and perspective. Thank you so much, Tara. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? 
You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.